Amen. Well, let's look at God's word together. This is Mark 9, 2 through 29. I hear God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. <coughs> Excuse me. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Jesus and greeted them. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whatever it, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought, him to, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out, but by anything but prayer. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the transfiguration of Jesus, and then we'll go into a little bit more of what happened after that moment on the mountaintop. But what are we supposed to learn from this story of the transfiguration of Christ? So I want to just jump in quickly this morning. We have three questions that I want to answer and look at this morning. First of all, what are we supposed to learn from the transfiguration? Secondly, why do we need to learn it? Why does this matter? And then the third thing is, how do we use what we've learned. So let's jump right in. What, what is it that we learn from the transfiguration of Jesus? And we'll see two amazing things here this morning. Because really, this instance in the life of Peter, James, and John with Jesus as he's transfigured before them is all about worship. So we're going to see two things about Jesus this morning in worship. The first thing is this, that Jesus is the object of worship. 
And then the second thing is we'll see that Jesus is the secret of worship, that he's the object of worship and he's the secret of worship. Now, you know, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was good friends with Peter, so Mark is Simon Peter, the Apostle Peter's account of his life, of his time with Jesus, okay? So Peter was very attuned to the Old Testament. That was his Bible. Uh, The disciples' Bible was the Old Testament. And so Peter was very attuned to the Old Testament, understood the Old Testament prophecies, and began to see these prophecies come alive as he spent time with Jesus. And particularly after Jesus' death and resurrection, he began to understand God's Word, the Old Testament, how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And so we're going to see that here this morning, that as Mark is writing about this transfiguration event with Peter, James, and John, he's tying it in to the, another similar story that comes from the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai with Moses, there's many similarities between what happened in the Old Testament with Moses on Sinai and with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So let's go back to the Old Testament. When Moses was with God on Mount Sinai, we see that a cloud is there, right? God comes down in this cloud, very similar to what we have going on here with Jesus. With Moses on Mount Sinai, God speaks out of that cloud. The voice of God comes to Moses. And then everyone is afraid, right? Moses goes up on the top of the mountain and he begs to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory, God. I want to see your infiniteness and your holiness and your majesty. And what does God tell Moses? If you go to Exodus 33, I'll just read it, but you can go today this afternoon and read this. But Moses pleads that he would see God's presence. And God says, look, Moses, when I pass by, I'm going to put you in this cleft in a rock, this cliff, this cave, this crevice in a rock. And I'm going to cover that opening with my hand because, Moses, you cannot see my face. My face cannot be seen because if anyone looks upon my face, they cannot live. They cannot look upon me and live. So Moses was not able to see God here, right? And if he does, if he sees God's face, what happens? Whammo, instant death, right? He's gone. Death and destruction. He can't even be near the glory of God fully because God's glory was so radiant. It was unimaginably radiant, would have blown Moses away, would have killed him. And so God had to shield Moses, right? Because of his glory, it was so radiant, he had to shield Moses and shield him from this encounter with God because he would have been obliterated. But Exodus tells us that even though Moses just saw the backside of God, the, that sounded bad, the back end of God, the, yeah, God's back, it, it, was so, it was enough, just that sliver, that infinite little sliver of God's glory that Moses saw was enough for him to become radiant with God's glory. You remember I used to have a watch that glowed in the dark. I love those. Now we have the Timex, you know, the Indiglow, whatever. But back then, back in the day, we didn't have those watches. We just had a glow-in-the-dark watch, right? And it's got that luminescent stuff that you stick it under a light, and it absorbs that light for a while, and then you take it in the dark. And you can't read the time when you're a kid, but you don't care. You're just excited about the light. And you're trying to read a book by it. You know, you're like, that's great. That's that's kind of what was going on. He absorbed God's glory here. Just saw a little infinite, little teeny piece of it. But it was enough for literally Moses to come down the, the mountain radiant with God's glory. Now let's look at Peter's, James and John, and their encounter with Jesus on the mountain. Centuries later, centuries later, we're on top of another mountain. And what do we have? Once again, we have heavenly glory, right? It's dazzling. It's overpowering. Mark tells us that Jesus was transfigured before him in verse 3 that Jesus' clothes became so radiant, so intensely white, that no bleach on earth would have worked to make them that white. That's how descriptive Mark's trying to be. 
So here they are on this mountain. There's a cloud coming down. There's a voice coming out of the cloud. You got Moses back on the scene here. <laughs> and Elijah to boot. That's pretty cool, right? So you see the similarities back to Moses and Mount Sinai. And you see that Mark is clearly making this connection with Mount Sinai. But it's not Mount Sinai all over again because there's an astounding difference here in this instance. And here's the astounding difference, okay? With Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses came down after being in the presence of God, reflecting God's glory, right? Here with Jesus, Jesus produces the glory of God. Significant difference, right? Moses reflected the glory of God. Jesus here producing the glory of God. The glory of God is coming out of him. He's the source of it. This unapproachable, uh, unsurpassable glory of God is emanating, coming forth from Jesus. That's a huge difference. So what does this mean? You see, Jesus doesn't just point to the glory of God like the founder of every other religion or prophet does. They point to their God and their glory, but Jesus is that God. He is the glory of God in human form. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the radiance. Jesus was the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exactness of God's nature and thus his glory is his Father's glory and nothing surpasses it, right? And so there's no middle ground here for the disciples. When they're in the presence of Jesus and his glory, there was no middle ground here for him. You know, C.S. Lewis gave us this great kind of paradigm for understanding Jesus, is he really who he says he was? If he really is who he says he was, he was either three things. He was either true, he really was who he says he was. He was either a, a grand liar, or else he was crazy. He was a lunatic. You see, the reason he gave us those three kind of categories is because you can't take Jesus for middle ground. You can't take him lightly. You either believe who he says he is, or you believe that he's a liar or a lunatic. When he revealed himself here to the disciples, they believed. And all of a sudden, their outright response to him was worship. They could not reject him because his claims were made true right before them as he's transfigured right before them. And all of a sudden, Jesus becomes the sun, which Peter, James, and John are these little microplanets that are orbiting around the sun. That's what Jesus is saying, that worship is that you come before him and you orient your life like a planet orients itself around the sun. You orient all of yourself around him. That's what we call worship Worship, there is no middle ground. It's total devotion and commitment to the Lord Jesus. So Mark's making it clear that Jesus is the object of our worship. But then he goes on and shows us that not only is he the object of our worship, but he is the secret of our worship. Because there's a second thing that happened here on the Mount of Transfiguration that didn't happen on Mount Sinai. Because the glory of God, right, it came down in both instances, but the glory of God came down on Mount Sinai. It was the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God. And God speaks out of the cloud. And Moses, Moses was experiencing God's raw presence and power. And if, again, if he had seen just a sliver of his face, it would have devastated him. That would have been the end for him. Why, why would it have been the end for Moses if he had seen God's face? Because there is an infinite gap an infinite gap between our humanness, our finiteness, and God's deity, who he is. There's an infinite gap. We can't take God's holiness. The Puritans call it that we are not fit for heaven. We're not fit for God. That God here on earth, as we trust Christ, is making us fit for heaven. That I, as in myself, at 43 years old, could not be in the presence of God 
apart from being saved and rescued in, uh, by Christ and having his righteousness because of his infinite holiness and majesty. I cannot be in the presence of God right now because of my sin, because of my inward flesh. And so the Puritans called it being fit for God, being fit for heaven. So think about it like this. Why did Mark tell us that Peter was so scared? Because Peter was thinking about Moses and what happened with Moses and God on Mount Sinai. Peter knew that to be in the presence of God was a devastating thing. And if you were not fit to be in his presence, then you were doomed. And so that's the reason Mark tells us that Peter was so scared. And he didn't even know what he was saying. I wish I could have been there to see that. Can you imagine uh, Moses and Elijah, show, show, Elijah showing up? Jesus is transfigured. And Peter's like, I, I, let me get you a tent, Jesus. How about some lemonade and a tent? I mean, that's what he's saying. And he's, he's freaking out. He doesn't know what to say. Mark tells us that he was terrified. And I always thought it was a goofy thing to say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, let me make three tents for you. And he's not talking about tents like the two-man pup tent, you know, when you did a scouting trip. In fact, it's interesting because the word tent used here that, that Peter uses is the same Greek word that they use for the word tabernacle, which is not just a tent. A tabernacle is the temple. It's, you know, one of the wonders of the world. It was this glorious place. Now, why would Mark use the word tabernacle here in this instance? Think about it like this. All of the religions of the world, all of them believe that there is some kind of gap, some kind of distance between man, humankind, and their God, their deity, right? And so every religion in the world believes that there's this gap, there's this distance between human and deity. And so they create some kind of space for you to worship their deity, whether it's a shrine or a temple or a mosque, right, or a building. It's a sacred space for you to connect with that infinite God, and there's this distance between human, humanity and deity. And so they, that's why they have this Human, this meeting place where humanity meets with deity. So put it in this context. Peter's saying, we need a tabernacle. We're in the presence of God. We're doomed. We need a tabernacle. We need to have some rituals set up here. We need to be safe in your presence, Jesus. And so immediately as Peter speaks out of the cloud, this cloud comes down and covers Jesus and covers Moses and Elijah. And from within this cloud, God's voice speaks. And he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Sounds very similar when Jesus, uh, God spoke to his son when Jesus was baptized. You remember this in Mark chapter 1. So here, Peter, James, and John are enveloped in the presence of God. But the difference is they don't die, do they? They see his glory in full, and yet they don't die. And then Mark tells us that suddenly they looked around, and they didn't see anyone else but Jesus and themselves standing there. Moses and Elijah had gone. Now why does Mark include that fact? Because this, it tells us that Jesus has become the bridge over that infinite gap between deity and humanity. The prophets, Elijah, the prophet Moses had pointed to, this, pointed to this full and future access to God. And now all of a sudden with Moses and Elijah out of the picture, Jesus is that promised full access to God. He's there. He's bridging the gap. And so we see that Jesus, through Jesus, we cross over into the very presence of God, the very community, the very blessing, the very love of God as that cloud descends and envelops them. Instead of them being killed, they are included into the presence of God, into the dance of the Trinity, if you will. 
So Jesus becomes the end all of the tabernacles. He becomes the end all of the sacrifices. He becomes the end all of the priests. He is the ultimate temple. He is the ultimate tabernacle. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the great high priest all in one. So God's glory comes down. The disciples don't die. And they're embraced by this brilliance of God. Can you imagine? Do you know what they just experienced? They experienced worship. That's exactly what they were doing. They were in the midst of worship. I love what C.S. Lewis says about worship. His uh, sermon called The Weight of Glory, it's an essay, but really it was a sermon in its first form. Listen to what he says about worship. He says, worship is the preview of things that all of our hearts ultimately long for. Worship is the preview of things that all of our hearts ultimately long for, whether that's art, you know, you're stirred by a beautiful piece of artwork, or you're stirred by romance, right? Those stirrings, those affections you have in your heart, guess where they come from? God's placed those stirrings and those affections there. They are a preview of things that you ultimately long for. You long for him and you long for heaven. So Lewis says this. He says, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things. Then he says this. He says, the door that we have been knocking on all of our lives will open at last. At present, we are on the outside of the world. We are on the wrong side of the door, he says. But all of the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. I love what he says here, that we are on the wrong side of the door here on earth. That the longings we have for, those affections we have for art and romance and people and things and stuff, those affections, God's placed there, and it shows us that we're on the wrong side of the door And on the other side of that door is intimacy and communion with him. And that's what we have created for. So the disciples believed in God, right? They already believed in God. They had this uh, mental acknowledgement that he was the Messiah. In fact, we looked at that last week, right? Peter said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the king to end all kings. But now all of a sudden, they're enveloped by God's love and glory on this mountain. And they didn't just acknowledge God intellectually but they sensed him. They were in God's presence. They had a foretaste of what Lewis says that we all long for, the very embrace of God the Father. You see, Jesus isn't just the very object of our worship, but he is at the center, the very core, the very heart of our worship. He is the secret of our worship. And so we're going to begin to see that this is immensely and immediately practical for us because We'll see why we need this. Why do we need to know this? See, Mark is teaching something immensely practical for us here. So they're coming down the mountain, right? Jesus and the disciples, they, or Peter, James, and John have had this intense experience, this mountaintop experience, literally a mountaintop experience. And they get to the bottom of the mountain. And what does Mark tell us? The other disciples are arguing. I mean, it's like a ruckus. The other disciples are arguing with the Pharisees over who knows what. Uh, you know, it's just a mess. There, the crowd's there. We have this guy uh, whose son is, is uh, demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't do anything about it. It was just a mess. They come back to the bottom of the mountain. You see, the disciples who didn't go with Jesus, the ones who stayed, they didn't have the ability to handle their challenges. And so Peter, James, and John, they come off the mountain, and they're immediately thrust into this tough situation. And it's kind of the same thing in Exodus. You remember what happened when Moses came off the mountain? You remember this? Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. 
God revealed himself. He's coming down glowing with the glory of God. He gets back into the camp of Israel. And what have the Israelites done? They've taken all their jewelry, melted it, and created a golden calf. And they're all worshiping the golden calf. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And Moses is like, I've just been with the presence of God and you're worshiping a calf. And Mark's telling us the same thing. They, they, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, walk down and it's chaos. And Mark is telling us something very important here. That mountaintop experiences are very what Tim Keller calls episodic. In other words, do you remember this as a kid? Maybe you remember this recently. You go to a Christian camp, you go to a conference, and you get fired up for Jesus, right? You get fired up for the Lord. You're so passionate about the Lord, and you're so passionate about, you have this renewed emphasis and passion for his holiness and his love, and you're fired up. And then after a few weeks, what happens? You begin to crash, don't you? As you begin to hit real life, you begin to hit and see what, life is really about and all of a sudden that being fired up for Jesus begins to wane and you come back to the chaos of the life and of the world and this is what life really is it's it's a mess it's chaos Mark's saying that life is essentially a long journey to the cross is what he's saying Jesus is saying listen guys life isn't about mountaintop experiences but it is a long journey to the cross and that's truth for all of us Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, don't tell anyone about this until after my resurrection. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because until after the resurrection, who was going to believe Peter, James, and John that they had seen Jesus transfigured before their eyes, that they had seen Moses and Elijah? So this transfiguration was just a foretaste of the resurrection. It was just a foretaste. It was just an episode in Peter's life. But as he came back down into the chaos of life, he realized that life is still a journey to the cross, regardless of mountaintop experiences. Now, you know, Mark could have just shared this to show us that Jesus was up there on that mountain. He was loved and embraced by his father there on the mountain. He was, uh, that was given to him as a gift to fortify him, to help him endure the suffering he was going to face as he faced the cross. But that's not just the only thing that's true. That's part of it. You see, what Jesus is trying to say here is that for all of us, life is a journey to the cross. That's the truth for all of us. In fact, what does Jesus tell his disciples in the book of John? You remember this in John 16 where he says, Beloved, in this world you will have trials and tribulations. What does James tell us? Do not be surprised, dear ones. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised that you face suffering and trials and circumstances that are hard. Don't be surprised that there are challenges in your life beyond your control. That's in the inevitable part of life. And, but we don't like that, do we? We push against that. Well, God, I don't, want, I don't like suffering. And so I'm going to push against that, Lord. I don't want that. We don't like it. And then all of a sudden, the disciples, as they're coming down the mountain, have this conversation with Jesus about Elijah. And I really think it's probably Peter. Mark doesn't tell us, but I imagine it's Peter who's instigating this. Because do you remember last week when Jesus shared with Peter what he was going to be doing, that he was going to suffer and die? I'm the Messiah. I'm the King of kings. I have come and I'm going to suffer and die. What is Peter's reaction? He goes ballistic, doesn't he? He freaks out. Wait a minute, Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what I signed up for and that's not what the Messiah I've heard about growing up is supposed to do. The Messiah who is coming is the one who's supposed to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory, to defeat our enemies. And so Peter rebukes Jesus, right? You can't do that, Jesus. You've got to come and, and take names, right? Kick some fanny, fanny and take names. 
And then here we have Jesus once again referring to his death. It's just been a short time, only a few days. He's referring to his death once again, and Peter again rebukes Jesus. I think he's wised up a little bit. He kind of takes more of the backdoor approach and rebukes Jesus in the form of a question. What does he say in verse 11? Why do the scribes and Pharisees say that Elijah must come? And Jesus says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying in the Old Testament, if you go to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, Malachi talks about the return of Elijah. And when Elijah returns, Malachi says, the great day of the Lord will be upon us. Elijah, the coming of Elijah is the sign, right, that the great day of the Lord is upon us. And the great day of the Lord will be a time when God would appear and make everything right. So Peter in his head is putting two and two together going, okay, listen, Jesus, we were on the mountain. Elijah was there. That must mean that today is the great day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord has begun, Jesus. The time is now. Jesus, it's your time to take over because Elijah is here. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And guess how I'm going to do that? By dying and suffering. And Jesus' response just lays them flat. What does Jesus say? Listen, guys, Elijah has come. And then he explains this to him. Look at verse 12. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, listen, guys, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Here's what he's saying. Listen, disciples. The new Elijah has come, and guess what? His name was John the Baptist, and he suffered, and he died, and that makes me the new Moses. And I am not leading folks out of political bondage like the old Moses. I am going to lead folks out of sin and bondage and suffering, and I'm going to do that through suffering. So here's what he's saying, oh, slow of heart, and you have little of unbelief. That's me. He's saying, Don't push back so hard when suffering comes into your life. Why are you resisting so much when suffering comes your way? Saying to the disciples, listen, anytime you follow me and suffering comes into the picture, you freak out. He says, in this world, you will have suffering. And the only way I can come into a troubled world that's broken and fix it and save it is if I go through suffering first and then go to greatness. So I am here to go through suffering first and then to greatness. And if you would follow me, you will, not suggesting like maybe you'll go through suffering. He says you will go through suffering if you follow me. And don't freak out. And we say, oh no, Jesus, you shouldn't let this happen. No, no, God, this isn't supposed to be happening to me. But Jesus is saying, listen, in this world, you're going to have tribulation no matter who you are. I love what Flannery O'Connor says about this. I I love her short story. She was a prolific short story writer, kind of a dark writer, but if you read her stories, the message of grace and the gospel and God's sovereignty is in almost every one of her stories. And so writing a letter to her friend about God's sovereignty and religion, here's what she said. She says, people don't realize what religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, when of course faith is nothing more than the cross. We, as religious folks, we like to think faith is a comfortable thing. But following Jesus isn't comfortable. Following Jesus involves suffering. Following Jesus involves the cross. It is a journey to the cross, folks. Life is a journey to the cross. So that begs the question then, if suffering, not if, when suffering comes your way, does it make you bitter 
or does it make you better? When suffering comes your way, does it make you bitter? Or does it make you better? Will suffering make you wiser and sweeter? Does it make you more patient, more pliable, and more teachable? Will, will suffering lead to humility? Dan Allender said that humility, you, you can't just get humility. Well, you know, I think I'm going to work on humility. <laughs> I'm going to be more, gee, I'm more humble today. Sounds like arrogance to me, doesn't it? Allender says that humility only can come through humiliation. It's the only way you get humility is by being humiliated. So does suffering lead you to humility, to being humiliated for the sake of Jesus? Does suffering lead you and God works kindness into your heart and he works grace deep into your heart and soul or does suffering make you bitter and hard? Does suffering make you more of an ornery person who's just frustrating to be around? Does suffering drive you closer to God or does it drive your heart further away from him? Does suffering make you more compassionate and caring for people or does it harden you and make you more cynical and despairing, closed to people and closed to his grace? Jesus says, in this world, beloved, you will have tribulation. It is a journey to the cross. It's not just jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop as much as we'd like that. I, I, I thrived on going to Young Life camps when I was in high school. Because it was mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. But God's not calling you to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. He's telling you to come off the mountain and enter into this world of evil and suffering. So if there's a way of going through suffering to greatness, Jesus says, if you would follow me, you'll understand how to go through that rightly too. So what is the key then to doing this? The key is worship. The key to suffering rightly is worship. You see, we can know what God has done through us through his son Jesus, that he has bridged the infinite gap, that he is our tabernacle, he is our high priest, he is our ultimate sacrifice, that Jesus and the cross are the bridge held by God's love and place. You can know that in your head, but until you have experienced that in worship, until you have experienced that, you don't just know it, but you've experienced that, it gives you enough of a foretaste to go, listen, I can endure I can endure because of his grace. I can endure and embrace this, what God has got for me now. You know, you know, it's one thing. I remember this before I got married. I was told by so many people, man, you just wait till those back doors open and press land starts walking down that aisle. You remember this? Guys, particularly men who are married. Do you remember that? Do you remember how you were standing up front and you're like nervous as all get out? <laughs> I was. And when I get nervous, I laugh. So, I mean, I was... <laughs> What a jerk. I'm up there laughing. But I couldn't help it. I was nervous. Presley was like, you laughed, honey. I was like, I wasn't laughing at you. I was just scared. But I remember that. I remember standing there, and they're going to say, you're going to be nervous. You're going to be anxious. But at the same time, you are going to be so excited when those doors open, and you're going to see the beauty of your bride coming down that aisle. And I remember that. I'll never forget. Sure enough, it was that moment going, man, I wish I'd have listened to those guys because I'm nervous. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, the, and the door's open and there she is. And it was stunning. It was stunning. It was, it was just an incredible moment. So you're, you're experiencing what you already know to be true. I already knew it to be true that I was probably going to be nervous. And then all of a sudden I'm experiencing that. Head knowledge of that when I was told before the wedding day, okay, I get it, I understand. But I didn't really get it until I went through that. That's what worship is, that we experience what we know to already be true. You see, Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He did that not to be, you know, show some fancy magic trick or illusion. He did that 
to convince Peter, James, and John that he was the Christ of, of his deity. It was a magnificent experience of worship so that it would strengthen them and nourish them for what lay ahead. Mountaintop experiences are great, but don't live for them. Don't jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. Worship is what you need, and that's what strengthens you and nourishes you to go forward and suffer, suffer for the kingdom and suffer for his glory and suffer rightly. So quickly, how do we use what we've learned? How do we use this? So Jesus and the three disciples are coming down from the mountain, right? Coming off this mountaintop experience. They're getting back into the world. They're walking right into this big argument between the disciples and some of the scribes. The disciples who had stayed had been trying to exercise this demon from a young boy. And notice what Mark says. They, the key word is try. They tried to do that without praying because they had totally underestimated the power of evil and suffering. And so the boy's father comes to Jesus, right? And he's the only one in this story who's admitting that he doesn't have what it takes to fix the situation. He's the only one in the stories who's admitting that, listen, I don't ever, ever underestimate the power of evil and suffering. I see it every day in my son, and I have nothing within me to do to help him or fix him. Jesus, you're the only one who can do this. So what does the father do here? What's the key thing that the father does? He admits he's powerless. Folks, that's where worship starts. Admitting you are powerless. That's how you begin to deal with suffering, is admitting you're powerless. Instead of trying to keep it together and stay strong, you know, I've got to show a strong face to my congregation. I've got to show a strong face to my children. I've got to show a strong face to my spouse, strong face to my parents or my friends at school when I face suffering. No, you don't. That's hogwash. You don't need to show a strong face. You need to admit that you're weak. You need to admit that you're powerless. And then you run to Jesus. You run to Jesus and admit your powerlessness. That's what this father did. Would you heal my son, Jesus? Because I can't do anything. Even your disciples can't do anything. You've got to help me. And Jesus says, what does he say? Everything is possible for him who believes. I can do it if you would just, if you would trust me, if you believe. And the father responds, I do believe. Help me. His two words, some of the most two important words you can ever say in this world are, forgive me. That would be second. Number one, I believe, is help me. Help me, Jesus. Help me overcome my unbelief, he says. I'm trying to, I am trying, but I am full of doubts and fears. And man, when he says that, that is the best news I could ever read in this passage. Why is that good news? Because we don't come to Jesus full of righteousness or faith. We come to Jesus as a mess, and we come to him with repentant helplessness. Help me, Jesus. Help me in my unbelief. I come to him with repentant helplessness. So what does worship look like in this situation? The Father's saying, I am not righteous. I am struggling even to believe. But I know that Jesus, you're the only one who can help me. You see, worship is coming to God in absolute neediness and in absolute brokenness. And I can't close this morning without helping us understand what it was that Jesus stood to lose at the cross. Because Mark tells us that that was where Jesus, like his face was set like flint, like stone, he was resolutely set to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross. He was running to the cross. 
So here we have Jesus who has lived with his Father in endless ages of glory. And Paul says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature and form of a servant. He left the intimacy and the love and the communion of, of his Father and became a man and died on a cross. And so when Jesus goes to that other mountain on the cross, he'd been on this mountain with Mount Transfiguration. He had had, in, had the embrace and the love and the approval of his father. But when he goes to that second mountain on the cross, he hears approval and love on that first mountain, doesn't he? When he gets to the cross on that Mount of Golgotha, the hill of the skull, he doesn't hear the loving, approving voice of his father like he first heard on that first mountain. He hears the silence of his father, doesn't he? There's no coming to the rescue of Jesus. He will be forsaken by his father at the cross. You see, on the mountain, Jesus was clothed with this heavenly garment. It was glorious. It was so uh, uh, bright and glorious that, that, that it was blinding. And he had the approval of his Father clothed in glory, but on the cross, he dies naked and in the dark. Why would he put himself through that, friends? He did that for us. And on the mountain, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God was strengthening Jesus for his mission for the infinite suffering that he would face to endure and defeat evil and suffering in this world and for you. You see, God can empower us in the same way to face evil and suffering in our life. He can empower us to face suffering and face it well if we would go to him and trust him and say, help me in my unbelief, Lord. I come to you in repentant helplessness. Would you help me, Jesus? So you know what you need to pray today, folks? Two words. Or three, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Maybe some of you, for the first time, you're praying that prayer out of faith. For the first time, you're praying that prayer out of saying, I don't know if I have a relationship with me, Lord. Help me, Jesus. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but you've become desensitized to his Holy Spirit. You've become desensitized to what's going on around you and you've isolated yourself. You've turned in on yourself. You're curved in, as Martin Luther said, on yourself. Pray this prayer. Help me, Jesus. Help me trust you. Transform me. Work in my life. Help me, Jesus. That's the best prayer in the world, folks. And sharing that with others. I'm really struggling. Help me, Jesus. Do you know people long to hear that? Instead of presenting this face of keep it together, Kit, K-I-T, keep it together. Just call me Kit, keep it together. <laughs> no. Help me, Jesus. Share that with folks. Be transparent. People long for transparency. They long for that. And that's a gospel moment when you're transparent with folks and you say, I'm a mess, I'm suffering, I don't like it. Help me, Jesus. That's powerful gospel ministry, folks, when you share with folks like that. Powerful stuff. I dare you. Take a risk. See what God does. You never know. You might start a conversation by the power of the Holy Spirit with that person that could transform their life. All because you are weak enough to go, help me, Jesus. Let me tell you how I'm struggling. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. This is a lot to cover today. But Lord, we thank you that um, even though I'm <coughs> often too wordy, um, I pray that you would apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts this morning. And Lord, help us to walk away from here, not saying, oh, I've got to try harder. Oh, I've got to do this. I pray that we would walk away this morning shouting at the top of our lungs, help me, Jesus. Help me in my unbelief. 
and that we would come to you in repentant helplessness. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Go before us now. We pray these things in your name. Amen.